Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. It's a very human reality, but we can turn that challenge into an opportunity in some respects because by working with communities like the Vezu, we've seen that we have an opportunity to demonstrate the enormous resilience of oceans, the enormous production that can still come from these systems if we manage them differently. And it's really crucially because of, of the social enterprise that sustains us that we can embark on these quite long-term journeys of exploration with, with the communities that we serve. I'm very pleased today to introduce Al Harris. Al is founder of Blue Ventures, a social enterprise that develops innovative approaches to nurturing and sustaining locally-led marine conservation. Blue Ventures is doing amazing work with the poorest communities in the southwest of Madagascar, helping them to rebuild their fisheries. The company has recently expanded activities into other regions, including Mozambique and Timor-Leste, and recently entered into a collaboration with the World Wildlife Foundation. Thank you very much, Alistair, for joining me today and for coming to share your story and your journey as a social entrepreneur on Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. Not at all. Great to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about Blue Ventures and how it all came about? Blue Ventures is a marine conservation organization. That's to say we work in the space of ocean protection, trying to rebuild fisheries and protect marine biodiversity, which as many of your listeners will, will, will know, is under siege, like so much of, of the planet's biodiversity. Many say we're now living in, in, a, in an extinction event, the sixth mass extinction event in the history of the planet, most of that caused by human interference in, in ecosystems and climate. Um, our work really is, is, is in tropical coasts and oceans, which is home to most of the world's biodiversity. Blue Ventures came into being because we take an unusual approach to marine conservation. We recognize from the get-go that most of the world's remaining biodiversity is in areas where people depend very intimately on the ocean for, for food, of course, but also for income, also their very cultural identity in, in many parts of the tropics. And these are, ironically, also some of the poorest countries on Earth um, where there can be very very often there's very little alternative to fishing as a way of life. And that presents some enormous challenges for conservationists because conservation ceases then to be a biological problem, a, a scientific problem that we study as, as, as zoologists, that's how I got into this, and becomes an issue of food security and, and identity and futures for, for many of these people. It's, it's, it's a $20 million question. How do we make conservation work? Um, how do we protect these ecosystems whilst also safeguarding the futures of, of, of what amounts to hundreds of millions of people around the world? So Blue Ventures began to try to grapple with some of these questions. Right, right. So would you say that you have adopted a traditional conservationist approach to solving this problem? As conservationists, we've historically had very few tools in our arsenal to um, address biodiversity loss and conservation and, and and the most widely used tool of course is is setting aside an area of the planet within which 
nature can thrive and flourish and recover. And in the oceans, that works incredibly powerfully um, because you can have discrete areas of ocean that may be protected and they may be isolated from one another. And yet because of currents and because of the connectivity of the water column, they can still help one another replenish. And that's exactly what happens when we set aside areas of the sea. Um, life rebuilds in that protected area, as we call it, or a marine protected area, um, also known as an MPA, marine protected area. Um, and eventually life gets so competitive within that area and there's so many reproductively mature animals and species that things start to swim out of it, both juveniles and larvae, as well as the adults themselves. And the theory of, 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 of MPA designers is that, um, and managers and conservationists, is, is ultimately what's swimming out of these protected um, you think of them as natural investment accounts, um, investment bank accounts, the, the interest that's swimming out of them more than exceeds the capital that we initially set aside. Um, and that's the reality. We know this. Um, so the recovery and the, the production that we can get from marine conservation is, is hugely positive and it's, it, it can help rebuild fisheries, of course. So that life that swims out, that interest can help replenish more degraded areas. So that's the conventional tool that conservationists have used. The challenge, of course, is what do communities do while they're waiting for that life to recover, while they're waiting for the interest to accrue on their capital in their savings account. And often that can be three, four, five years for that, that interest to, to, to appear. So what's a community that is living on perhaps one or two dollars per person per day to do with an interruption to fishing for that period of time. That is probably the single greatest challenge that the marine conservation sector faces. What are the incentives we can use to mitigate the opportunity cost of conservation in the short term while we're waiting for these huge returns that we know will come? But they, what, what are we supposed to do with, 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 for our livelihoods in the short term? Um, that's been the conventional tool that we've used as conservationists for a long time. Blue Ventures is perhaps um, apart from the mainstream in that we focus exclusively on that incentive piece of the equation in the tropical small-scale fisheries sector. That is, the small-scale fisheries, we often refer to them as not-so-small-scale fisheries because it refers to the hundreds of millions of people that depend on fishing around the world, most of whom are in the developing world, most of whom are in very small vessels, fishing in ways that are far less destructive to the environment than the large-scale or industrial commercial fishing sector. Um, and it's these communities that, that, that will suffer most as a result of collapsing fisheries, and they are a huge constituency. Over a billion people depend on fishing um, and, and, and protein from, from the sea for their food security and livelihoods. Um, and about one and a half billion live around our tropical coasts alone. So it's a, a globally important voice that is really up against this conservation challenge that, that we as an organization find ourselves up against. Wow, that's extraordinary. That's a massive number of people. And what's at stake then in the sense that if things continue as they are within a five, ten year horizon, what do you expect to happen? We know from, from science and from the data that extinction rates today are very much higher than the background extinction rate, possibly an order of magnitude higher. Um, and that means that life on Earth and in the oceans is disappearing fast. 
Um, we know that a lot of that is due to climate change and also direct human impacts like overfishing. And if we look at variables in the ocean like um, fish stocks, um, 80 to 90% of, of the planet's fish stocks are fully or overexploited. And we don't have data for many stocks as well. So um, particularly in the developing world, we simply don't know the state of, of, what's, of what's being fished. But we know from historical perspectives um, quite how far things have fallen relative to, to background catch rates or abundance or, or production data. Um, even with the most um, optimistic climate forecasts, we know that um, things are going to get much harder for life in the oceans and for the production that that, that supports and thus the food security of, of hundreds of millions of people. So we, of course, have to live by a precautionary approach, given what the writing that, that is very much on the wall. The situation is, is, is very, very bleak. It's very much five minutes to midnight. Um, as conservationists, we, we tend not to dwell on that um, and focus in, instead on the practical um, interventions that we can use in the short term to, to, to generate a return that's within a meaningful time frame for communities. Wow. So on the one hand, this is about biodiversity and conservation, but it seems to be deeply intertwined with the fates and the lives of the fishermen. Absolutely. Biodiversity for biodiversity loss and extinction for a scientist studying in Oxford in the UK is perhaps, uh, it's, it's a crisis of, of geological proportions. It's, it's unprecedented, of course, but the grim reality of collapsing fisheries and extinction in the oceans for, for people that truly depend on the sea is, 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 is far worse in many ways because it means that there's nothing left and, and, and whole communities are now moving um, because of fish stocks that have, have collapsed and because of ecosystem change at, at, at kind of macro scales. We're seeing this in the Indian Ocean. We work with a community called the Vezu in the Mozambique Channel who historically have migrated with fish stocks and now they are migrating further than ever before for longer periods, putting themselves and their families at great risk from cyclones and rainy season storms um, just to catch what, what few fish they can in areas where there is still production. So it's a very human reality. But we can turn that challenge in, into an opportunity in some respects because by working with communities like the Vezu, we've seen that we have an opportunity to demonstrate the enormous resilience of oceans, the enormous production that can still come from these systems if we manage them differently. And then this community then becomes a constituency for change and, and, and we've seen viral expansion of locally led marine management in some parts of the world as a result of communities recognizing as a result of communities being empowered to manage their fisheries firstly, and then witnessing the, the, the gains in production that can come from this. Ten years ago, none of Madagascar's seabed, inshore seabed, was, was protected by communities. Madagascar's got one of the biggest exclusive economic zones in Africa. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. Hundreds of thousands of people dependent on fishing for, for survival. Um, so 10 years ago, the situation was, was very much nothing had been done in community conservation. Today, about 13% of that country's coastline is, is within locally managed MPAs. And that's all as a result of communities recognizing the benefits. That's a, the result of a viral movement for conservation that's taken place there in a decade. So we know that this can happen. We know that 
fishers, rather than being an obstruction to conservation, fishermen and women can be an incredible engine for it, taking it to a scale that's way bigger than anything that our, let's face it, frankly, marginal sector of development can ever achieve alone. That's fascinating. The idea of viral social change. I was speaking to somebody just earlier today who's spent 30 years trying to change perceptions in health, and it's been a really long, hard slog. The idea of people spotting these innovations and wanting to replicate them is a very powerful one. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how has that worked, and what are some of the you know necessary preconditions for this? Because it's clearly a very powerful way of generating change. If we look at the example of, of a country like Madagascar, um, we, we've seen this grassroots explosion of local engagement in, in, in conservation, I think because of the design of, of the conservation interventions. Um, typically, we as conservationists, and I'm a, I'm a zoologist, I've studied coral reefs for my PhD and come from this very much from the kind of ivory tower, um, but have, have since transitioned into a, a recognition that we can't really, it's, it's not practical to, to have that very purist view of, of what we'd like to achieve as conservationists, which is 30% protection. It's simply not viable in areas where um, so many people depend on, 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 on ecosystems for survival. Um, typically, um, the, the target that we're looking for with a marine protected area is an increase in a recovery of the biomass of fish within that area or the recovery of a coral reef. And these things can take two, three, four, maybe five years to recover to the point where we can measure the recovery and where fishers will, fishermen will, will, will observe and witness that increase in product production around the protected area. Now that five years in a community that's very hand-to-mouth and where discount rates, so the economic preference for something today rather than tomorrow, where discount rates might be incredibly high, that five-year hiatus or wait for the interest is just not viable. So in a context like Madagascar, the approach has been to recognize that from the start and to say, well, what can we use? What can we? What are the levers that we have available to us that might generate a recovery, a meaningful, visible, tangible return in a time frame that's realistic for communities. And we've actually gone back to looking at biology and the life history of many of the species that small-scale fishers in the developing world are targeting. And it turns out that many communities aren't actually looking for groupers or big old fat fish that take a long time to recover. They're actually targeting very short-lived, fast-growing invertebrates particularly for the fisheries that are reaching international supply chains, so the fisheries that are most economically important for these communities. And in the Western Indian Ocean, where I've spent much of the last 15 years, the uh, one fishery on a coral reef for a, a, an invertebrate called an octopus has um, turned out to be the most important fishery for, for, for just about every community we've worked with in, in, in coastal Madagascar and many other states. Um, and it turns out that the octopus grows exponentially once it's settled from the water column onto a, onto a coral reef and then dies after 18 months. Um, and that means that an octopus that might weigh 200 or 300 grams today in a few months' time might weigh two or three kilos. So very, very non-linear growth, which is interesting for a community even though discount rates can be very high. And so by piloting conservation through interventions that generate returns not in three years but three months, we've been able to 
demonstrate to communities that they themselves can be the custodians of their fisheries, they can be responsible for bringing about these enormous returns. And that's proven to be very compelling. Obviously, conservation is not about managing octopus, but by starting with a foot in the door with something that works, something that works quickly and very demonstrably, we've then seen communities that previously would never have considered setting up an MPA coming together, working with neighbouring communities and villages and setting up conservation visions and areas that are far beyond our wildest imaginations 10 years ago. We, we, we support one group of communities in, in, in the Mozambique Channel that manages an area of several thousand square kilometers. I mean, this is, this is unprecedented. It's the largest protected area of its kind in the Indian Ocean. So it's, it's hugely positive for us to see um, the benefits of, of grounding conservation in, in practical incentives. That's remarkable, the scale and, as you say, the, the fact that people are spotting this and taking it on themselves and, as you say, the incentives allow them to get some rewards within a, some kind of time frame that they can, I guess, deal with. As an organisation, you talk a little bit about it. you're a social entrepreneur and raise your own funds. How did you think about that and how has that worked for you? I became a social entrepreneur out of necessity. I set up Blue Ventures when I was leaving university after my undergrad um, and of course, no one in their right mind would have given me funding to um, to, to try to become a conservationist or develop some of these ideas. So um, Blue Ventures is actually funded as a e using ecotourism um, revenue from a from a um, marine conservation um, voluntourism um, social enterprise. So uh, clients, volunteers from all around the world join us for six week periods where they learn about marine science. They learn how to scuba dive at our field sites around the world and at the end of a, a six-week stay those those volunteers graduate to the point where they're sufficiently trained in identifying species underwater that they can help collect some of the data that support management efforts around these sites crucially of course also that provides financial sustainability to the organization and generates a very small amount of profit which is then reinvested in piloting in management interventions and supporting community initiatives that are quite exploratory and crucially all very long term because of the financial engine that keeps this going there's no arbitrary predefined end date by which a so-called project in inverted commas will come to an end in fact there is no project in mind initially it's a co about supporting a conversation with a community to look out for what levers we can find in that socioeconomic ecosystem in the fishery in the markets where are the octopus where are the low-hanging fruit that we can use to catalyze conservation and it's really crucially because of of the social enterprise that sustains us that we can embark on these quite long-term journeys of exploration with with the communities that that, that we serve um, so it's not all about octopus it's it's very much about using that finance to fund a laboratory. Now, I'm sorry to say that today we, we're no longer exclusively financed by that model, which was a wonderful way to exist in the early days, but it's, the revenues are simply too small to support the organization at the scale it now operates. And so we leverage um, that, those experiences and the funding that that creates um, through more conventional funding channels, both through, through program funders, as well as increasingly through organizations that are investing in, 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 in our um, innovation and, and 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 cultivating replication of some of the models that have come out of out of this laboratory if you like so helping blue ventures pivot from from being the lab to 
to starting thinking about how can we become the factory? How can we reach scale once these models are, uh, are clearly working and once we've validated them? Right, right. So a kind of hybrid financing model. <laughs> where yeah, taken, yeah, that's right. Yeah, common to many uh, social innovators, I guess. How is that working for you, raising and managing different sources of finance? We have an amazing team um, within Blue Ventures. So my role, obviously, has, has, has transitioned a lot. I've been doing this for apparently 14 years now, um, and it still kind of feels like I'm, I'm just cutting my teeth. Um, it, obviously, initially, I was very much involved in, in building the business and, and, and marketing and selling and providing services to clients um, to finance the operation. And gradually, as our structure evolved and we gained more and more good people, I've been able to transition <clears throat> more into a role of of conservation design and programming and support um, and partnership development. Um, so none of this would be possible without without the extraordinary team and that, that share the, the the vision of the organisation that that we have behind us. Um, we have over one hundred and ten staff, I think now, but um, we achieve everything that we do on I think a budget of not much more than two million. Um, so it's it's very much an organisation that's driven by the values and and our commitment to this mission. So it's it's extraordinary that we managed to hold it all together. Um, but yeah, we're continuing to grow. And um, just last month, we opened up a whole new country program in in East Timor, um, using this model or this tourism model to seed innovation in the conservation space in a very very high biodiversity country that really is lacking desperately critically in civil society engagement in in the marine environmental space that's great news as far as the financing side i guess the world of finance is changing and you've got many different kinds of sources of finance oftentimes i've spoken to social entrepreneurs who've had some problems with you know the kind of program funding it working in particular cycles and you know needing to keep donors happy and satisfy them and sometimes it hasn't worked for them are you finding flexible innovative sources of finance that that allow you to meet your goals you know to be more sustainable over the longer term and at the same time while you're doing getting revenues as well from the other side of the business yeah i mean so so obviously in a, in a in a good year we'll make enough profit through our tourism business that we'll be able to reinvest in 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 in, in conservation programs using self-generated revenue um which is the ideal it doesn't always work that way we've we've endured military crises and coups um financial meltdowns um natural disasters we've we've you know, experienced real risks associated with that trading model for a long time, um, and yet it endures. I mean, it's extraordinarily resilient, um, but it doesn't give us enough. So the pr- we get program funding um, for for models that are in a in a stage of development where we're testing their scalability, their sustainability. Um, for instance. Um, we run the world's first community ranches for sea cucumbers in partnership with some fantastic organisations. Um, and sea cucumbers are a potent aphrodisiac on Southeast Asian markets. They're extremely expensive. They're almost completely fished out throughout the tropics. Um, I should add, they don't actually work as an aphrodisiac. I've tried on several occasions, but they, they, um, this, this, this is an amazing opportunity for communities to diversify their income away from fishing, reduce their dependence on fishing, um, improve their socioeconomic status, um, and yet, despite five years of investment in this model, we're still, we haven't validated it yet. So we depend very much on program funders to help us lift a lot of these models and do the science and R&D. For instance, with the sea cucumber farms, we periodically lose an enormous amount of production from uh, disease or there have been the value of these, this, this, this crop, if you like, um, has attracted lots of outbursts of theft 
in an area where there's already very high banditry um, in, in southern Madagascar in this case. So um, we do depend on program for supporters to funders to, to help carry us. And some of those relationships are, are enduring and are really, really important to us, particularly a couple of American foundations um, that have been with us through through thick and thin, helping develop some of these models. A new kind of funding that um, we've discovered and that's been made aware, uh, come to us really over the last few years has been unrestricted funding from um, some US foundations that are really investing in our strategy as an organization of uh, innovating models and then taking them to scale through partner conservation organizations around the world. And that's been an extraordinary journey for the team to get to know organizations that are are interested in our in expanding our reach by um, almost guerrilla conservation <laughs> helping helping other organizations adopt our models and thinking and and r and d systems um, and m and e work and 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 all we want in return is is the data to show whether or not these models are working in new countries for instance we can we can expand our reach way more quickly and 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 far further if we're doing it in partnership with one of the bingos, one of the major conservation bingos, and there are many around the world, the big international NGOs, um, then we can by growing organically stepwise through trying to expand a very low margin tourism business every year. Um, so these unrestricted foundations, um, several of whom are within the Big Bang Philanthropy Group, have really taken the time to get to know us and understand our strategy and invest in in, in a whole pivoting the organization to, towards becoming a, a factory and and it and it's um it's been a very difficult journey for us to do that because it it's culturally very difficult to step outside your labs and start building partnerships in new countries and it's it's extremely complex to make sure you've got the M&E underpinning all of that um it's been a really really exciting learning journey for us and that's also what we've been doing since we we won the scholar award last year Great trajectory and development. What would you say for other social entrepreneurs looking to extend their funding opportunities and build relationships with different kinds of funders? What would I say to other social entrepreneurs? That's a really hard question. I mean, obviously, it's very sector specific. Um, it goes without saying, but having a very diverse funding stream is 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 critical um, to 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 the organisation's viability. I think um, we have got to the stage now where we've learned to be able to say no and it feels really good to say no why uh, why do you need to say no <laughs> um we can't be donor led um there's a reason that we can encourage and maintain a stable team with little turnover of 110 people on two and a half million pounds of turnover and that's because our team are incredibly bought into the mission and the culture of the organizations the organization and they really espouse our values now if we as an organization then go and take a five million pound grant from the wrong um bilateral that wants to push us in a in a journey that's really not appropriate for us at a scale that we're not ready for then that would be to ride roughshod over the culture of the organization which is way more important to us than anything else um and it and it's really important to know when something's just uh, donor driven and and not be attracted by that overhead because of course that will not do anything or give anything to the organisation other than manage the the sum of the growth that will come with that um, enormous grant opportunity. So 
I think we made a lot of naive decisions in the early days just from inexperience and from saying yes to everything from consultancy contracts to um, major, major funding opportunities, particularly, as I say, from 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 governments and bilateral funders and um, who ha- hadn't taken the time to, to get to know us as our core program funders do, but rather dictate what they think our agenda should be. Um, and so regularly, as we've evolved and got to understand what our strategy is, is we use that internally as a as a reference, a signpost for us as when we say no, when we say yes, and we we're, we're not afraid now to to walk away from opportunities, no matter how attractive they might be, um, because we've got something that money can't buy, and that's an extraordinary team that is so wedded to our mission, um, and we we simply can't ever risk um, compromising those values. Wow. Social entrepreneur is it's a pretty broad church now and encompasses lots of different variants, I suppose. But what for you does that allow you as an organization? It's a very broad church now, indeed. Uh, when I started being a social entrepreneur in 2001, it meant raising all your own revenue, or, or at least most of it. I mean, that was a whilst achieving social good. And, and, and it definitely doesn't mean that anymore. I think for me, what's key to the definition of social entrepreneurship is is a vision for scale it's a vision for changing the way people do things in in that sector to make it more efficient to spot inefficiencies and to to address those and to not be content in the context in which you might have proven that a model works and continue delivering that service, it requires a restlessness to want to disrupt anywhere where you see that inefficiency persisting. Um, and we're almost mandated morally to try this. It's not easy to decontextualize a model from Madagascar and scale it in Mozambique. I mean, it's much easier to just keep doing it in Madagascar really well. And yet, being a social entrepreneur, <laughs> you haven't got a choice. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Do you have a sense that if you're being funded by, should we say, donor-led, that inevitably would just restrict your ability to keep trying to find new ways of doing things? It did. It, it kills the focus. It would, It would. you know, we know what we're trying to do. We know what we're trying to sell. We know where we're trying to scale. And we know what our market looks like. If DFID comes up to us tomorrow and says, guys, we really like that aquaculture project you did. Incidentally, it may have failed two years ago, but we want to invest in it. You know, we have to be able to say no. Just because DFID are offering us two million to to pick up something that we've agreed cannot be scaled because it hasn't passed our criteria for replication. That's a bad example and not to, you know, to, to point the finger at DFID. No, absolutely. I understand completely. And looking forward, what are your goals now? I mean, when you start talking about them being a small but not so small fisheries and so forth, where do you want to be in five to 10 years? And talk a little bit about how you see the scaling, because it's obviously working with fishermen communities is quite intensive, labor intensive and takes time, presumably, and to build trust and build relationships and so forth, which seems at the other end of the scale from the classic kind of scaling up model and technology and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's really hard to scale conservation. Now, I could be here talking about any sector of social enterprise telling you it's really hard to scale um, health in Africa or education in, 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 in Asia. You know, it's really, I guess all social entrepreneurs know their sectors well enough to know that decontextualizing and scaling are really, really challenging. But I do believe that it's even harder in conservation. We're layering complexity. No two ecosystems are the same, cultures, communities, jurisdictions, histories, markets, layer all that together 
And you can have an octopus fishery in the same kind of coral reef at the same latitude in the same bit of the Western Indian Ocean, talking about two completely different jurisdictions, Madagascar and Mauritius, say, next door. Um, when you don't have the same levers available, community management might be possible and encouraged in one, it might be illegal in the other. So, and yet it's everything else is the same, even the export market. So complexity is is just a real a real challenge. And I am constantly um depressed sometimes and 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 astounded and yet also motivated by the paucity of entrepreneurs tackling or trying to tackle conservation challenges there are a lot of community-based groups doing extraordinary work but we have to try to accelerate the growth of our movement if we are going to be able to do anything to quickly enough to address the extinction crisis that is is taking place and the human consequences that that will bring about we're talking about unprecedented social disruption um demographic shifts as a result of these resources these ecosystems falling apart so i mean the five year to five to ten year horizon for us is firstly we're we're really excited about that the power of grassroots dialogue in scaling some of the models that we're developing the the way that that, that 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 replication happens in the context in which we work is not in the ivory towers of conference centers and academia. It's not in NGO offices in Geneva or, or, or DC. It's in community conversations, fishers talking to one another about what works, what may have worked with them. And our role as, as conservationists is to provide interpretation facilities and funding. And it's it's been incredible for us to see this and next month we're taking a group of fishers from madagascar to mexico 14000 kilometers to talk about um managing the same species in a very different context and we're convinced it will work and it has worked in every other international exchange we've we've organized and we see it as a really powerful um engine for replication i think the jargon jargonistas would call it a south south learning exchange but it works it's really exciting um that's key for 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 our scaling strategy beyond beyond our work with blue ventures i'm i'm very keen to to move more into the advocacy arena um we see ourselves alone a lot of the time championing these issues and trying to raise awareness of of what we call the not so small scale fishing sector um it affects the livelihoods and futures of of hundreds of millions of people and our um markets and 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 consumption patterns in in the north have a direct impact on the food security and livelihoods of of these people most of the fish that we eat and consume here in the uk where i'm talking to you from for instance are not fished in the uk they're not even fished in europe they're fished in developing world coastal states under access agreements um, that may have put the food security of these countries um, at risk and so i'm keen to see a world in which the right to fish or the right to consume another fish from another country um, is not taken as our God-given right. And in fact, where uh, small-scale fishers, the hundreds of millions of them that live around our tropical coasts, are able to secure the rights that they have, the basic human rights, to continue fishing sustainably without risk of that resource being effectively stolen by um, corporate or industrial or foreign fishing interests. Um, it is a tragedy that is unfolding 
all around the tropics at the moment, and it's very much out of sight and out of mind. Um, and so that is an area that I'm, I'm keen personally to transition into. Um, but I, I certainly have another decade of work in Blue Ventures ahead of me, I think. That's a fantastic vision and very inspiring. Thank you very much for sharing that with us today, Alistair, and I wish you the very best of success into the future. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.